Hey everybody, I'm Amy Barron, and this is Upskilled Solutions in the Learning Universe, where I talk with professionals in education and workforce development about practices and perspectives that catalyze positive change. Hi everybody, we are here today with Nikki Navda and Dr. Kelvin Bentley. Uh, Nikki is an education technology entrepreneur who is currently with Cognitive Toybox, which is a game-based assessment application for early childhood education. In 2018, Nikki sold her nine-year-old startup, Zulama, to Carnegie Learning after bringing computer science education to thousands of teenagers through video game design. Welcome, Nikki. Thank you, Amy. Uh, I'm really glad to be here. It's great to have you. And Dr. Kelvin Bentley is the Vice President of Learning Strategy for Six Red Marbles, a digital learning content provider for K-12, higher ed, and the workplace. Kelvin has been in the field of online education for almost two decades in a variety of roles as a faculty member, administrator, and consultant. He's written articles on digital learning for publications such as Educause Review and Inside Higher Education. And he's been the recipient of multiple honors and awards, including Blackboard's 2017 Catalyst Award for Inclusive Education. Welcome, Ke Kelvin. Oh, thank you, Amy. It's great to be here with both you and Nikki. Well, I'm very happy to have you both. I'm actually really excited about today's conversation because I think we have two uh, thought leaders here who have really been involved in so many different aspects of our topic. And I think they bring very different experiences to discuss. So I'm really excited about our conversation today. So we're gonna be talking about engagement and um, most of us know Gen Z learners, or maybe we are Gen Z learners ourselves, although I doubt any of the, that category of people is listening to this podcast, but you never know. And we know that there are certain challenges uh, with engaging these learners. So I thought maybe we could start our conversation just talking about some of the challenges that educators today are facing in engaging Gen Z learners. So do you want to take that first, Nikki? Sure. I mean, uh, right now with Cognitive Toy Box, I'm directly working with really young kids. So my current um, focus is not really there anymore. But when uh, I was working with Zulama, it really was that age group. And we are our, our philosophy was to embrace it. You know, we knew that kids were really interested in video games. And by helping them learn through video game projects, we were really trying to combine and show them that they could learn by doing the things that they love. Yeah. And you mentioned video games. I think, you know, one of the, to, to state the elephant in the room, one of the challenges of engaging today's young learners is we're competing with video games, right? Like they have that incredible, compelling video game sitting right there. And we're asking them, no, don't do that. Do this online educational application. And it's just not quite doing it, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Plus, I think what we see with that age group is, um, especially with expertise 
out there on the internet now more than ever in terms of, you know, you can Google anything you want, you can watch a YouTube video to learn how to do so many different things. I think that uh, that generation is actually quite fortunate in their access to information. But, uh, you know, us as educators, we really need to help them understand that, first of all, they need to source that information. They need to be careful where they're getting that from and make sure it's from a trusted source. And then second of all, that does put pressure on us as educators to not just um, tell students how to do things that they can find from trustworthy sites, but give it context and give it life and make it meaningful for them. I think that's really where our challenge lies right now in educating this new, in this, this generation. Absolutely. I mean, relevance is huge. And um, Kelvin, you're, you're primarily dealing, I think, with older students, more of the higher ed population. Um, speak to us about some of the challenges there with engagement. Yeah, so I think, you know, with college age students, uh, again, there is this need for immediacy, um, you know, before, uh, you know, in terms of contacting students, you know, we uh, leveraged email heavily. And of course, now with younger students, you know, they don't live on email anymore. I mean, they, they you know, they're, they're on their phones. They're, they're leveraging so many different apps as well, like TikTok and, uh, and other things like that, Twitter and, you know, other, other types of uh, social media. Yeah, so Snapchat's you know, trying... even passe these days, right? Yeah, they kind of go right. from one thing to another <laughs> and it's not always the same thing for a, a while. So. That's right, right. And so we're always, that's a great point. We're always trying to play catch up to try to find out where, where are they living? And I think it's an opportunity, right? I mean, for us to, you know, kind of uh, take their pulse uh, more times than not to find out what is the best ways to uh, get in contact with them. I think in, in higher ed, especially, we, we need to, I think, you know, because um, course content, it's like it's design and development is very decentralized. What ends up happening is that there's not always this group think around what are the best ways to engage students in terms of instructional content Faculty for lots of different reasons, because they're very busy, for example, doing research and other, other scholarly activities, they will leverage, uh, especially on the undergraduate level, they will leverage textbooks that come with ancillaries. And I would argue, you know, those ancillaries are not always as engaging as students need them to be. They, they are not always as well contextualized uh, as we're talking about. So it's an opportunity for faculty to figure out, you know, how can they develop more you know, uh, more media rich content that students will uh, gravitate toward. Um, and, but again, that's very difficult because, you know, you could have a hundred people teaching intro to psychology, but in a hundred different ways. And, um, and then that makes it difficult really to find, you know, what, where's the sweet spot in terms of, you know, really engaging content. Yeah. You bring up a couple of interesting points there. One is this, notion that all students are in the same place. And if you want to, you know, get messaging across, you can just go to Snapchat or just go to Instagram or, but no, I mean, the students of today are on so many platforms, they're very disaggregated. And I know that that's been a challenge in higher ed is, is just getting students aligned in the same place and getting them the messaging you, you want. Um, the other point I was hearing was this idea of rich media and this notion of, 
you know, not just delivering the recorded lecture because that is just not doing it for students. And I know that's a big issue with the distance learning that's happening, the remote learning that's happening today uh, everywhere is that that engagement factor. Students are one click away from distraction at all times. And I know that that's huge. So, so let's talk about what does engagement look like? I mean, what are some of the trends that we are seeing in uh, education that really go to the issue of engagement? One thing that immediately comes to mind for me is this idea of personalized learning mm -hmm. and the idea that not only the content needs to be personalized, but the context, the delivery method, um, finding ways to engage students with co uh, content that is meaningful to them. So. So why don't you uh, give us a little insight there, Kelvin, on um, some of the some of the education trends we're seeing around engagement right now? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I you know I, I think one interesting thing that's happening in higher ed is that competency-based education as uh, as an option for how students uh, receive credits, uh, college credit is is uh, is apparent, it's there. I, I, it's, it's tough to say that it's increasing, but I think there are pockets of, you know, there are examples of schools that do it really, really well, like Western Governors University. The proof is in their numbers in terms of enrollments. Um, they, you know, have well over 100,000 students and they're, they're, and they're growing, right? So they, they're not even reaching a ceiling. Um, many uh, adult students, for example, have the ability to, again, demonstrate mastery around specific competencies, right. which are then, you know, organized within courses. And so it kind of flips this whole idea that a student like you and I have to be in a, a class for 16 weeks, right? Now the focus is you might need eight weeks to finish a course. I might need even less time because mm -hmm. I have a professional, um, you know, like life experience, you know, professional experience that I can bring in that actually helps me demonstrate that I actually know um, how to do certain things, or I have a certain knowledge base that is, that aligns with the type of course that I'm taking. And so I think what we're going to be seeing even more is that, you know, schools are going to have to rethink this whole idea of semesters and quarters um, that really it's going to be about students kind of sh demonstrating mastery and cobbling together a portfolio for themselves, which will be courses, it'll be, you know, internships or micro-internships, right. right, work products. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that will be where we're headed. Um, I think, uh, you know, now with, you know, we're all kind of watching politically what's going to happen, who will be the new Department of Ed uh, secretary. It's going to be interesting just to see how, um, and also the Higher Education Reauthorization Act, if that changes, there could be some doors opening for competency-based education where schools are maybe more incentivized to do this, you know, allowing students to demonstrate uh, competencies. Yeah, and actually one that you were, you touched on something at the beginning when you were talking about um, credits was schools uh, increasingly reaching out to colleges and other kinds of higher education institutions to try to pull together, um, establish meaningful dual credit programs. And it seemed to me that that was on a rise, uh, that, that that was becoming more and more 
um, accepted and that higher ed institutions were becoming more receptive to that as an idea. Uh, but I'd love to know, Calvin, what, if you're seeing that trend as well. Yeah, I, I think that trend um, is very strong. And so I'm really glad that you brought up dual enrollment. There are even states like here, I live in Texas, and you know, dual enrollment is actually baked into the law. So you know, uh, students as young as, um, as those in ninth and 10th grade can sign up for dual credit. You know, and, and this, this is a shift because uh, previously, um, um, until this new law came into place a couple of years ago, you had to be older, right? You had to be a junior, senior, right. and and now there's a new currency uh, because there's there's dual credit. There's um, you know the the IB, the International Baccalaureate Program. There's right. advanced placement, and so now if you have a if you're a college, you know if you're a high school student aspiring to go to college, now you're like, well, I could just do it through dual, uh, you know, dual credit. I mean, I can right. because at least there I can sign up. I'll, I'll get credit on the high school side. I'll get credit on the college side, and I'll actually get the credit as long as I get a C or better in the class. Right. Um, versus having to take an extra test, let's say through advanced placement. When I was in high school, that was my only option, right? I had to take right. advanced placement tests, and then even back then in the in the late '80s. Uh, you know, advanced placement was very limited uh, in some regards in terms of subject area. Sure. So, um, so yeah, dual credit is definitely going to continue to be popular. Well, and I think one thing that we uh, became aware of in terms of dual credit, the more we understood the, at least the community college landscape was that they, on the surface, you would think that they would not want to grant you know, dual credit, because then they get all the credits when kids come to their institutions. But the more I spoke with educators and, you know, leaders in, in those organizations, I learned that they really, they do really emphasize graduation rates and success for students, meaning they want the students that graduate to be able to get jobs and to move on to, you know, meaningful careers. And statistically, when kids come into higher ed institutions and they have to repeat courses that they've taken in, in high school, or, you know, they, maybe because they haven't, you know, they're, they're not testing high enough you know, they actually have to take extra credits to catch up, those students end up faced that they are much more likely to, to not graduate then. So what I was finding from the people I was working with at the higher ed institutions was saying if they, you know, they were all, they were very supportive of kids getting more, um, you know, like a higher level of achievement in high school, because then when they did get to college, even if they had a couple credits under their belt, they still had a much higher, um, statistically a much higher chance of graduating and success. And that's really what, what we're all about. So, yeah, I, I'm, I want to just um, pick on one thing that you were starting to talk about a little bit, which is related to engagement and skills for the workplace. The idea of developing skills uh, through an engaging methodology is something that you're very familiar with, Nikki, in, mm -hmm. uh, in your experience with Zulama, mm -hmm. and that's game-based learning. So can you talk a little bit about how game-based learning is being used nowadays? 
Sure. I mean, I think there are a couple different kinds. I know a lot of people lump a few different things into game-based learning. You know, what we did is we used creating games as a vehicle for learning things like um, project management and, uh, you know, um, math skills and computer science skills, and then even content area expertise. Like if you were developing a game about global warming, you know, you had to do some research and understand global warming in order to really pull together a game that might, might, made sense. So that, so that's, the, we thought uh, that what we were doing at Zulama was really using games as a vehicle for, uh, you know, giving kids a meaningful project to work on. So that's one kind of game-based learning. And then what we're seeing more also is these online platforms becoming more game-like themselves. And that's another kind of category of game-based learning where you know, kids are learning, but they're actually playing a game or, or at least the online experience feels more like a game because there might be a leaderboard or there might be some social aspect to it. Um, and that helps keep kids feeling like that's more relevant to them, what, you right. know, what they're doing in their, in their leisure time. Yeah. That motivational factor, the, exactly. you know, leveling up and getting points mm -hmm. and rewards. And that's mm -hmm. all very much, I think, on the minds of education technology developers. These sure. Days. Sure. In fact, there are some educators I know that have, instead of using a traditional, you know, ABCD grading point system, have switched to a XP type of a grading system just to turn their classrooms more into something that feels like a, a video game experience for their students. And you know, I think there's a lot of different ways teachers can be creative, um, but they do need to try some of these things because, you know, we're seeing it with these with this generation. They really are um, more demanding, and they're more informed consumers of their educational experience. So yeah, it's a yeah. it's a tougher landscape um, to educate them. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You're talking about you know what the teachers are doing, and I think that. My background has been in the education technology product development side, as, mm -hmm. as are you know, both of yours, I know. But mm -hmm. um, I always think about what are these education products, these new education technology products doing to maximize engagement, right? And I think about the different technologies available. Uh, you've got your artificial intelligence, which mm -hmm. allows for adaptive learning that allows you to move a student along at a pace that makes sense for them going, uh, adapting the content according to their needs and levels. Um, you talk about artificial, uh, I'm sorry, uh, virtual reality and the gaming mm -hmm. aspect. You talk about mobile learning and, you know, the whole idea of um, getting students engaged in order to uh, develop their skills. And we talk about the 21st century skills, the four C's of critical thinking, communication, collaboration, and creativity, right? What are, you know, what are some of these emerging technologies doing nowadays um, to, to kind of maximize that engagement? Yeah. I mean, if you, I have, so with our work, we, we did a lot of that at Zulama, but even um, at, at, at Cognitive Toy Box, the adaptive learning is a huge part of what we do because what we're, we, you know, we work with really young kids, um, kindergarten and younger, in fact. And so we're really 
cognizant of not increasing their screen time any more than necessary. We actually, you know, we don't want kids to get so engaged with these digital devices that they're spending too much time on it. Um, We've developed assessment games and we try to keep them as short as possible so that in the shortest period of time, when the kids play these games, we then learn what they know and what they don't know. And then teachers and administrators can use that to inform, you know, their instruction and their program planning. Um, And the reason I kind of go through that is then to understand um, in order to keep these games short, adaptive learning is a huge key to that, right? Because if we, if a child starts playing a game and we see that they're not, you know, answering the questions correctly and they're not progressing, we don't keep asking them higher level questions because they are just going to get frustrated and, you know, and disenfranchised. And so with adaptive learning, we can, you know, we, in a very positive manner, okay, game's over, you know, and then we level that child and, and we move on. And, you know, I think, I think we can use adaptive learning in really positive ways like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how about in terms of, of, um, businesses and practical job applications, Kelvin, in terms of curriculum and, you know, how are our technologies being used in that regard? Within higher ed right now, there are some, you know, there are several schools that are leveraging, you know, like VR technologies to support curriculum. Um, Arizona State University just recently announced their partnership with a company called um, Dreamscape uh, Immersive where they are actually building a platform that allows them to kind of create customized VR content. Uh, some, some of the content is actually more defined, but it'll actually be a VR platform where uh, students will learn more about um, biology related topics. Um, this is a kind of a continuation or an enhancement of work that ASU was already doing uh, around adaptive learning because they had partnered with an adaptive learning company called Cogbooks, uh, for example, to do um, their biospine curriculum, which uh, allows you to kind of earn a biology-related uh, degree through, you know, these adaptive learning um, modules. So it's, it's, it's a very interesting time. Um, of course, the, the challenge that we have in higher ed is that you know, uh, money is not equally distributed. And so resources are not equally distributed. So how will schools, will schools actually engage in this work to, you know, find new ways to uh, engage and educate their students, leveraging these evolving technologies that we're talking about? That's still an open question. Um, It's also very challenging right now, giving uh, COVID because resources are, are, um, are, are less, you know, less available. Uh, state legislatures, for example, are starting to cut back on things like higher education and education to make up for revenue loss because of COVID. So, um, but it'll be interesting just to see once we're kind of post-pandemic, once we're in that phase, um, it'll be interesting just to see how schools will be able to, um, uh, to move forward um, you know, with these newer technologies. Yeah, yeah. One you thing know, I think um, I'm also seeing that I'd love to mention is that um, this is the idea of job skilling and sort of more practical approach to education. You know, I think we're seeing an, an, an entrepreneurial, you know, kids being much more entrepreneurial where they get what they need from this 
source, you know, and then, then they're, and then they're just empowered to be more creative because like, I love what Calvin said before, which is about sort of like, it's becoming more accepted to sort of cobble together, you know, your own personalized pathway of education. And that's quite often includes, you know, starting your own business, even when you're, you know, 18 or 20, 20 years old, right, of some kind, or, you know, there, there are more things like that, that I think this, that Gen Z's are doing that is new for that, for our generations, or it's more, more accessible, or it's more accepted at, at this point. So it's, I think that's really exciting, actually. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think, this idea of student learner, you know, empowerment is is crucial to that engagement piece. And I feel like we could go on forever with this conversation because this is such an interesting topic, but I think this is a good place to stop it because we're on a positive note here. We're talking about <laughs> student agency and empowerment and entrepreneurship. And I think those are all uh, things we'd like to see more of, right? And uh, I want to thank my guests, Nikki Navda and Kelvin Bentley. Thank you for an extremely interesting conversation. Thank you. Sure. Thank you. It was great to be part of this. Maybe we can do a part two sometime. <laughs> yeah, look forward to it. Uh, me okay. too. Great. Thank you. And thank you all for listening to Upskilled. This episode has been brought to you by Convergent Learning, specializing in education technology product consulting and market strategy. You can follow me on LinkedIn or on Twitter at AmyBaron1. That's A-M-Y-B-A-R-O-N-1. And we'll see you next time on Upskilled.